Our world has so many needs, and when you want to make a difference in the world and do some good things, it can be hard to know where to focus. Should you deal with the big global issues with some advocacy or policy work? Or should you deal with local issues with hands-on work in your community? Either is fine, or you could do both, like today's guest, Orion Kriegman of the Boston Food Forest Coalition. He used to work for several years on those big international issues, and now he's working to revitalize urban neighborhoods by introducing nature, helping people grow food, strengthening community. So the global and the local, it's all connected, and it's all interesting. This is a really fascinating conversation today. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate. It's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries. We are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi friends, welcome to the joy of saving the human race. I'm Shelby Murtis. Thanks for joining me. So before we begin, I want to let you know that this show is available in a bunch of different places on YouTube, Spotify, and most podcast players because I want it to be convenient for you so that you have a lot of choices. Wherever you listen to this, I would be grateful if you would hit all those good buttons, like the like and the subscribe and the share and give it a rating and any of that good stuff you wish. Um, if you subscribe, that helps you know when new episodes come out and we can stay in touch that way. And also, as you like it and rate it and all that good stuff, it lets other people know about the show. And this is not just a show. It's a growing movement where uh, we try to push for strong global solutions to fix some of these big global problems that face humanity. So I would appreciate your help with all that stuff. So today, I'm really excited about this conversation we're going to have. Um, we're here talking with Orion Kriegman, who is executive director of the Boston Food Forest Coalition. Orion. Welcome to the show. Hi, Shelby. Yeah, good to have you with us. So we have talked a little bit in the past about your interesting professional life and the path that you've been on. Um, what I have found interesting about it is that you have encompassed some work with these really big global issues and then also now doing work that's very local and hands-on. And I don't know if I've met anyone who has sort of transcended the really big and the local, you know, in one life. So I find it interesting. Um, Orion used to work for the TELUS Institute, which deals with some of the large global issues facing humanity that affect our future with some analytics and forecasting, envisioning about what the future might look like, um, which could be really big and great 
great or it could be kind of horrendous if we're not careful um, and some of the things we need to be paying attention to. And then also now is working in Boston, Massachusetts for the Boston Food Forest Coalition basically reintroducing nature to some urban neighborhoods and helping people grow food and revitalizing neighborhoods, which um, is just pretty cool. And we'll hear about that too. So, um, so why don't we start by, you know, you could tell us about TELUS and, you know, the TELUS Institute and just what that is and what you did there, if you could. Sure. I mean, TELUS Institute has a long history, and a lot of what it accomplished over its history happened long before I arrived. Um, and it started with a different name even, um, you know, and sort of back in the 70s and, and largely tracks the emergence of the whole field of sustainable development and, and thinking about sustainability on a global level. Um, and a lot of the attention it got over the years was for some work it did with the United Nations um, where it helped convene the Global Scenarios Group. And it ran several scenario studies about the trajectory of global development under different assumptions and crunched those numbers and published those in a series of reports. And one of its scenarios was the optimistic scenario, the best case scenario, you know. Um, so it, it looked at the notion of in a extreme inequality rising and polarization deepening and you know global development being unsuccessful and poverty and inequality being part of a, like a global apartheid so that was like one possible outcome from the present day another possible outcome it looked at was like market forces being triumphant and technology full of innovations and all sorts of good surprises and what that scenario might look like. Another one it looked at was policy reform, you know, sort of like uh, intelligent global um, policies being, being enacted either through the United Nations or some form of global democracy. And, you know, having that ripple down to national levels and sort of basically a, a global social democracy emerging. Um, but the great transition scenario basically was the assumption is that humanity makes a civilizational transformation and shift towards um, what we would think of as justice. Um, but, you know, thinking specifically about like, what does it mean to really realign uh, human civilization with natural systems and be in harmony with nature and live on earth in a sustainable way, in a balanced way? And what does that actually mean in terms of the economic transformations, political transformations, cultural transformations, educational transformations, like really thinking about the whole gambit of what that change would look like and how might we imagine it? So we did a lot of different um, thought pieces while I was there within what became known as the Great Transition Initiative, uh, which was a network of global scholars and activists um, that I coordinated um, through discussions and, and research papers. And a large part of it was asking this question, um, like, how do we get from the world we are today to this vision, this beacon of a great transition? Like, what is the pathway? And what does that look like? Um, and how might we imagine it? And so people took different stabs at it. And there's, you know, real vigorous debate about some of these ideas. And 
it was very intellectually formative and fascinating and wide ranging. And I, I spent a lot of time um, talking uh, with folks about climate change because the, the TELUS Institute, um, you know, they were involved with the intergovernmental panel on, on um, the IPCC reports. They were, they were authors on those reports. So when Al Gore won his Nobel Peace Prize, the IPCC report also won the Nobel Peace Prize. And so um, by extension, so did the, the scientists working at the TELUS Institute. And so we'd have a lot of conversations about um, climate change. And this was back in the early 2000s when it really wasn't even on the policy radar on a national level. You know, this was like just barely breaking through with Al Gore doing some tour of his uh, PowerPoint presentation as a movie. And people were like, oh, yeah, change our light bulbs. You know, it was like just sort of the cusp of the conversation. Um, and I remember at one point, like, uh, we had visitors from the Environmental Protection Agency, like, come through and do a little talk with us at a brown bag lunch. And it was informative. It was like they, they said, yeah, our everything related to climate change has to go through the vice president's office and get redacted. I was like, whoa, that's mm -hmm. weird. That's not the country I thought I lived in. <laughs> right. Yeah, you'd expect that in the CIA or the Defense Department, right. not like climate change. Yeah. yeah. That was back when Dick Cheney was, you know, in charge of things. Um, so anyway, it was like, so that was eye-opening for me to like be part of those conversations, to be thinking about the big policy implications of climate change. Um you know, by the time Obama swooped in and the, the Paris Accords were created, like in my mind, we were already up against the wall at that point, based on what I had learned at the TELUS Institute. So in my mind, like the Paris pledges were like too little too late. And of course, we're not even like close to achieving those. So it's like the whole thing feels very bleak. Um, at some core level, that was true back back then. Like we knew it all back then. We, you know, just wasn't part of the conversation yet. But um, I think one of the things that I really got from the TELUS Institute is that the rational basis for hope is actually in the, the simple fact that nobody can predict the future. You know, the future is fundamentally unknowable. Surprise is baked into this universe. You know, like there's many examples where you can't predict what's gonna happen from the constituent parts that make something up. Like you can't predict the properties of water by studying the properties of oxygen or hydrogen, something completely novel emerges when you combine them. And we could not have told you it was gonna be there. And that happens again and again. Um, and so the, the future is fundamentally unknowable. Another reason is because, you know, if you believe in free will and human agency, the future is made up of choices that we've yet to make. So the future is not someplace we're, go, you know, we're going to, it's something we're creating through our choices by joining together with other people. So even if it's improbable, even if this great transition scenario feels very unlikely, I think the simple point is that it's technically possible. It's, it's achievable in a hard numbers if you crunch the numbers sort of way. And that's kind of what the message of the TELUS Institute was. Um, and therefore, it's probably worth fighting for or trying to like pull the gravitational force of civilization in that direction, like make that our beacon that we aim towards. Even if we fall short of it, we'll be better, we'll be far better off than we would have otherwise. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, it's interesting what you say about free will and that nobody can know the future. And I think about this a lot because I get frustrated sometimes in public conversations where it seems to be a debate between optimists and pessimists. And people are making these predictions like, yes, this is going to happen. This good thing future is going to happen or this bad future is going to happen. And I get tired of predictions because really nobody knows. And it depends what we do. So, I mean, something I, I value about TELUS Institute is that it's, it's not only crunching numbers and putting out scientific reports, which is all great and important, obviously, but there's this imagination process that's necessary for people to try to get a handle on where we're headed and what our choices are. And, and I feel like us using our imaginations in a grounded way is just critical. You can't make a future unless you can envision it first and work toward it. So it must have been interesting to be right there in the middle of these conversations that are both um, scientific, but also using, using your imaginations. It, it seems kind of unique compared to others out there. Yeah, it, it was, it's, um, yeah, it was incredibly intellectual. It was incredibly like imaginative it was a real invitation to sort of play with some radical, ambitious ideas. You know, like what, like one of the questions we continue to ask is like, what is global democracy? Like what is, like when you have transnational corporations that have power, enough power to play national governments against themselves in the sort of race to the bottom and lowering of uh, environmental standards and labor standards and all sorts of things. And these transnational corporations can free up the movement of capital you know, even as humans can't move to where the jobs are now created because of uh, immigration restrictions. But like you have this whole situation where what's the proper level of um, governance over these organizations? I mean, there's no existing governance. It's a free-for-all. Um, and so like, like on a national level, we kind of worked out a model. It's not perfect. It's been argued about. It continues to be, you know, challenged intellectually but like it's the the notion of sort of like the welfare state or social democracy in in europe as it's been formed um you know it largely works to provide health and wealth to people and a minimum floor for most of the folks and you know literacy and like so it's like it's not utopia but it's it's not a disaster and, and the capacity to extend a version of that to the globe is real like it's not unimaginable that you could have national national standards around health and access to health care and late labor laws and safety and environmental standards be applied across the globe and distribute resources more evenly um, through taxation and, and other other things that we do on a national level all the time. So it's like what are the obstacles to that? Like why do people fear the phrase global government is such a feared concept, right? So like the questions of like what are the social dynamics and the psychological dynamics at play and like what is the technical challenge there and what are some of the models that people have attempted or tried or you know like in pulling that all that into a conversation and trying to digest it and come up with some insights as to like that was great that was fun <laughs> like I, I, I at that time in my life i worked with a bunch of academic folk 
Um, and we wrote a paper about the potential of a real movement of global citizens, you know, saying that we are part of a of one earth nation, you know, where we prefigure it, we demand to be part of it because we believe in it, because we identify with it. Like what would it take for such a movement to really emerge and the solidarity that would require and how might racism and, and all the intersectional things that get exploited in left-wing social movement fermenting where like people are separated and have a very hard time coming together. And even the concept of a shared vision is like not something that uh, followers of Michael Foucault would even want to buy into. It's like, there's a whole vision around being divided. It's like, it's like crazy, the left, right? So like, what does it mean to sort of have a progressive global citizens movement? Um, you know, so that was, that was a fun paper. So we, so, so I remember that was fun for me too, because it was like, I think the only academic paper I've ever published in my career. And it was, you know, presented at a conference with other academics and critiqued by academics. And it was kind of a fun, you know, it's fun to be thinking on that level. It gave me yeah. a little taste of what it might've been to be a professor maybe. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So these, Mass, I mean, the changes we as a civilization need to make are pretty massive. Like we need a lot of things to change all at the same time at all levels of government in all countries. In, and it's a cultural thing, too. Um, I mean, as you guys did that study, are there some of the top um, levers we can pull to make this happen? or some particular areas where we should all be focused on to try to get the changes we need? You mean- I know it's a massive question, but- Yeah, it's a massive question. I think, um, I mean, I feel really humble. I don't know that I have answers to these questions. I have lots of like thoughts of, about pieces of these, uh, but it's having been at the Tells Institute really reinforced for me how hard it is to reconcile some core values and key insights um, across disciplines and really help, you know, get people on the same page about a shared vision that people feel good about. I mean, that's a very tall order. And I don't know that the Great Transition Initiative ever really achieved that. I think it achieved robust discussion, though, which was pretty like rigorous conversation around around some of the complexities of that. I, I guess I don't no, for a global citizens movement, I don't know that I do understand what would um, usher that into existence. I think the concept that we work with at the time is that it's kind of latent. It exists in our imaginations, and some people already identify with it, you know, even though it's not been called into existence in a very broad way. Um, and some people are writing and thinking about it, and the, and the, the languaging on it is diverse, you know, not just not just across all the languages of the world, but also within the English language, it's diverse. You know, it's like, there's just people haven't centered around core, core framing. Um, but I do think like human rights, I think focusing on human rights and the universal declaration of human rights and sort of the ancillary documents that came out of the struggles of prior generations, like the earth charter, I think those documents rescuing them from oblivion and obscurity and holding them up as, you know, people emerging from the horrors of World War II and trying to forge a path forward for future generations not to ever have to go back to that, you know, just level of atrocity and, and barbarism. And, and look, the world has been not perfectly peaceful, but certainly, you know, 
um, not even close to perfectly peaceful, but there's, but it's certainly not as much war as like World War II, right? It's like, it's a different, like we haven't had that yet. We hope we don't have to go back to that. Um, can we build towards better peace? You know, it's like justice, they say is a road that you walk, you don't get there overnight. So to my mind, it's like remembering the revolutionary romanticism of democracy. Like in the United States, people hear the word democracy and their eyes glaze over. Now, that's definitely not how it was back in the revolutionary period. But everyone points out, oh, they had slaveholders were fighting that revolution for their own benefit. And I think that's kind of the challenge. It's like, even so, like even with those origins, even with that starting point, the fight for justice in, in what was created as the democracy of the United States of America expanded the voting rights, expanded the civil rights, and no, did it ever achieve perfection? No, but it like it's a road that we're walking, and we we step into that stream of prior activism, and we try to sort of grow it towards the future. And we um, so I think respecting and looking backwards at some of these efforts of our ancestors and saying, hey, this is this is um, something that we're lifting up as like the foundation of what could be the, the like the Earth Charter could. You know, become something that is universally understood and acted on. And I know people have tried that. I know I know it's been brought around the world. I know there's been critiques of it. I know it's like on an intellectual level, it's been looked at. I guess what I'm saying is like at like at some core level, it's like we need to know what we're about. Like our fundamental values need to be put before us and we need to buy in. And then folks all around the world can do their own work towards that same common vision of of uh humanity surviving right it's like so you pick it up in your corner of the world the way it makes sense in your corner of the world but you can talk about the fact that you're in solidarity with people in other parts of the world and you know how to reference them and you know what flag to wave to show that you're in solidarity and you know if it's not the earth charter like what document you point to that like has collective buy-in like you there becomes something bigger than its its component pieces i guess that's like a global citizens movement. And then in terms of like, how do we help that come about or where do we plug in as individuals? Like, I think you just gotta do what you love. Um, I think that old quote, uh, like don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs are more men and women who've come fully alive. Like, I think the times right now shut a lot of people down and you know, a lot of folks are taking antidepressants or watching too much TV or smoking pot and drinking or whatever we do to sort of numb ourselves down and not feel the pain of the world and the pain's only intensifying. So we gotta work on coming alive. And when you come alive, like you respond to the need that's present in your community and your family. Um, when you respond to that need, then you align with the regenerative forces of nature and nature's capacity to regenerate the web of life is truly astounding. And we just have to sort of like step into that and say, to seek with our hearts to be a part of that. And some people do that on a policy level, which is great and important. And some people will do that on a grassroots level, which is great, that's important. And some people will do that on the front lines, which is great, that's important. And some people will do that on the visionary like thought pieces. I mean, all of it matters. And I don't know where individually you can make the best impact. I mean, that's a, that's like a, like that's my own quest in my life. Like I'm still working on that. Yeah, yeah. And there are millions and millions of ways to help the world improve. 
I mean, it's just astounding how many things are needed, but that those are all opportunities for to help and feel plugged in and important and whatever it is. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be like these big policy issues. Or you don't have to be an activist or whatever. I mean, hell, be a janitor. That's incredibly important. I mean, a business is going to close if you don't have a janitor. You know, like um, it, there's so many ways to be of importance in the world. But, I, you know, maybe we can develop this culture where people know that they're part of something, that there's millions of people doing their different things, but they're all headed in a similar direction. So I hope the fingers are crossed. So well, I think it's also like a core need to belong. Like I think um, in a perverse way, that's why Trumpism works so well in America is it takes people who are alienated and atomized and feeling overlooked and disregarded and disgraced. And it brings them together in giant arenas where they listen to classic rock music from their childhoods and they get to sort of like have fun and eat good food and feel like they're not alone. And all of a sudden they're invited to like wear the red hat and wave the make America great again flag. And they feel like they're part of something and they're, they matter again and they belong and they can they're recognized and other people's stories resonate with their stories. And it generates a sense, a very positive sense of camaraderie, um, even as it orients itself towards building a wall and locking some people out. I mean, that's the trick of, um, I mean, the Telus Institute taught me this, like fascism in Europe was connected to the whole localism. And, you know, the smallest beautiful local economy is not inherently an anti-fascist thing. And so if you're, if you're really trying to like put it all together, like the, you want the peace, the sustainability and the justice, like it's a hard puzzle to assemble. Yeah, well, and it's all in some ways the same thing. These things are all interconnected. So yeah. th there's these issues that have been seen as moral issues like forever, you know, like justice or fairness. And people have fought about these things for thousands of years. But now we're at this point of existential risk in the world where everything's going to go down the tubes for everyone unless we learn how to treat each other fairly or to share resources. You know, like if we let people remain poor in parts of the world, they're not going to be able to fight off a pandemic that's a shared thing, or they're not going to be able to afford solar panels to deal with the climate, you know? Like these things just have to get dealt with or else it's going to hurt all of us. So hopefully we'll be at a new point where people are open-minded to bigger solutions than they have been before. I hope. Well, I think, I think one of the, the things about the scenarios um, studies is like in a time of crisis, you know, that we talk about like systems have stability and um, homeostasis, right? That's what kind of like they self-regulate, they get, they get perturbed, but they sort of come back. You know, it's like your own body, you get a fever, but then you come back after you fight off the bug. So you stay in systems, stay steady in homeostasis. And then when it gets knocked out of homeostasis, it goes through a rapid transformation. It's like this S curve and it finds a new, it sort of goes up that S curve and finds a new homeostasis point. And that rapid transformation is chaos. It, I mean, that's the, it's just a lot happening at once before it can settle on a new. So that's sort of the moment we're in right now is like the old system is, is absolutely getting destabilized 
but the set point, like the new system, it could be a barren, lifeless world. <laughs> you know, that's definitely within the realm of possibility. I, I laugh because it's like, it feels a little bit outside what's probably going to happen. But it, it could be a world without humans. It definitely could be a world without civilization. It, like the set point is like variable and will depend on what we do. And I think when we, um, when we find ourselves faced with the fact that like the decision we're going to make in the next 10 years, 20 years is going to shape the future for humanity for generations to come. Like that new set point is going to be established. Like we're setting the trajectory. Um, who asked for that? Who wants that? Like if you really open your heart and your eyes to that reality, it's like, it's kind of like uh, being Frodo in, in um, the Lord of the Rings. Like he didn't want to carry the ring to, mount doom and throw it in the volcano but like someone's gotta do it <laughs> it's like like prior generations they didn't want to stand up and have to fight but they did you know for us to have the freedoms that we have so it's like now it's our turn for our children and our grandchildren and if we take on this mantle of responsibility i think the first feeling is just probably overwhelming shame and grief and like who wants to pass through that gate <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. But I think all of us, though, in our lifetime will have very difficult emotions about the state of the world, whether we're paying attention now or not. I mean, we could ignore those feelings now, or we could feel like shit because we lost our home in a hurricane, or a fire, or the economy collapsed, or like... It, we're in a time of rapid change. It's just going to change rapidly whether we decide to take charge of it or let it fall apart into chaos. So it's like we might as well deal with our feelings now and then try to do something about it or else we're going to have more feelings later as everything falls apart. So it, it is, I think, important for people to find ways to manage their emotions around these big issues instead of avoiding them or i think like the the thought that has come to me in my own journey around this because i think i carry a lot of grief for the world and i feel like it's important to bear witness like as we watch the rates of biodiversity uh, the rates of extinction are going up right and as we watch animals that i grew up loving and believing in and seeing like an endless infinite nature you know like it's and watching it become finite and watching and grieving the loss forever of species that you know my children will only see in in books right or on tv from old film but like are not really in the world anymore like that to me has been a like i i often think about the the mountain gorilla every time i use my cell phone it's like in order to get the rare earth minerals we are reducing the mountain gorilla population through mountaintop removal and mining and and there's only 500 of them left on earth um and yet they are such a powerful archetype for me personally in my life like i fell in love with primates at a young age and got really involved and thought one day i might even be a primatologist you know like there's a whole other side of my life that was uh looking at behavioral ecology and, and really in a scientific way um so anyway it's just i think my insight for me around that is i needed to be given permission to be my whole self and to have space where that wild energy that 
that is grief, which is all the feelings that come with loss, you know, anger and shame and fear, absolute terror, you know, like all those feelings have a wild energy. And when you really embrace that wildness, it's a two-edged sword because the pain is actually, and the despair I've discovered is actually hits a floor. And when you do it with other people and you all hit that floor together, there's nowhere else to go but up. And you, and you start talking about gratitude and you find within yourself joy and aliveness. And some of the numbing down that I had to do to survive my childhood, it, you know, it's like, whoa, it's nice to be feeling again, even though it was, you know, it's double-edged. <laughs> it's a feeling that stabs, but it's so, it's so joyful too. And I think that wildness, that animal aspect of ourselves that civilization has tried to control and tamp down and harness towards the means of production and all that sort of stuff, you know, the way we were trained to sit at a desk and, uh, you know, keep our legs still and all the stuff that we do to sort of like become an adult in today's world, like we need space to grieve. We need space to be wild. We need to invite wild energy into our lives. I think, you know, festivals, football games, like these are moments, but like we need to do it in ritualized and connected ways. And I think that's what a large part of like healing is and coming alive with nature. Like if we're going to realign with nature, we need to allow ourselves to remember who we really are as human beings and, and redefine civilization with towards human needs. Like right now, as a young parent, I just was blown away when I, my children were first born and there's like no support, like no one understands. No one at work is like, oh, you got young kids in the house. Of course you're not showing up the way you used to. Right. Everyone just right. has to keep doing it. It's like, yeah, like crazy. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, life is uh, messy and complicated. You know, when a moment ago when you were talking about the various um, emotions that can happen around doing this work and really facing what's happening in the world, it makes me think about my own process this last couple of years of really pursuing my mission and um, digging into some work that I used to be afraid of doing. But now I'm doing there's a show and now there's some additional stuff I'll be doing related to this. And it, it's, it sparks so many emotions in me. Like I feel joy and happiness to be doing work that I love, but it also terrifies the shit out of me to be facing these horrendous issues in the world that are so scary. And every day I dig around in the muck of the dark side of humanity, but yet it feels right and I'm grateful to be doing it. So I've, I swear, I feel the whole spectrum of emotions all the time, which makes me feel more alive than ever. Yeah. Like really, I have finally woken up and I'm fully alive. And I just, I welcome anyone to just join me here. <laughs> Life is better <laughs> when you really, just face it, deal with it, feel it, just do it and embrace all the emotions that come. That is aliveness in a way that I didn't even know was possible until recently. So I don't know. I think for me, it's been crucial to do it with other people and not to do that alone. I think that's been like the missing ingredient. And like, 
And that means like, I think there are safe containers. I mean, I think there's reasons why we, we hide ourselves because the world's not always a safe place and we have been hurt. And like, it's some of that self-protection is, is totally important to honor and, you know, not just take the armor off any old spot, like in the middle of the street, you know, you do get arrested, right? But like, there's a, there are containers where it's permitted, welcome, safe. And I've found them in professional circles. I've found them in personal circles, um, you know, in different ways. And I think that's the thing. It's like, we just need more such spaces and we need more recognition of the fullness of the human experience. And, you know, the other thought, I'm going to go back to the question you asked a while back there, um, like leverage points. Like, I think moving from despair into action is a leverage point. Like a lot of folks feel that sense. I mean, we've all been taught, like since, since I was a young kid watching TV and everything on TV is like, you're a consumer. And then you go to school and they say, the American consumer. And we're all like, we're the consumers and the consumer's always right. And like, it's a passive, uncreative role, right? So it's like, is that, and then we're stuck in this economic treadmill that makes coming together in community feel onerous and burdensome and like extra meetings and more to do. And I'm just exhausted as it is. And, you know, if, if I'm so lucky to have the freedom to go to extra meetings and not be working, you know, multiple jobs. But the whole point is like, it's a treadmill for a lot of people, no matter where they are on the spectrum. And uh, I think if we're going to overcome that and like shift, uh, you know, we got to believe in the goodness of that you know there's a lot of chore and conflict and negotiating egos with people so i think there's a part of our culture which is atomized because it's safer you know we can just retreat behind our closed doors and buy our groceries online <laughs> like you know the whole thing is like you don't have to interact and, and so at some level that meets a need because because people are complicated and hard a lot of the time but at another level that atomization is soul sucking because we're naturally social animals that need to be in relationships that are reciprocal and caring. So like we're craving it even as we're avoiding it. So we have alienation, atomization, and now polarization on top of it, where it's just like everyone's screaming at each other at Thanksgiving because they're on different sides of the spectrum or they're screaming at each other online or wherever you look, they're screaming at each other. And so it's like it, it, it exacerbates that feeling that humanity is just not worth saving. And it exacerbates that sense of self-hate which is, which is ultimately like that's like if humanity was one human being on earth right now, it's almost like we're a suicidal teenager that's cutting herself. And we need to like figure out a way to love ourselves if we're gonna survive. Like we gotta find the beauty in community again. And we gotta exercise that atrophied democracy muscle. And we gotta get out there and move from despair into action together. And in that collective action, we'll find solidarity and power and we'll find hope. I think that's that to me is like the other really critical thing. People have to feel called off their couches and out from behind their TV sets and their screens and everything. And like, you know, it's like shouting at each other on the Twitter sphere is like not real action, right? Like we got to get out there and, you know, and I think that's what brought me to the Food Forest Coalition. It's like that work is in the dirt. We're planting trees, we're sequestering carbon, we're restoring soil, we're listening to nature, we're finding out what's gonna grow in this changing climate. 
We're learning about the seasonalities. We're noticing the seasons. We're taking out our journals and we're keeping farm journal notebooks about what's been growing and what hasn't and why. We're watching how the insects and the pests interact with each other. We're learning the names of these plants and insects and things that were around us our whole lives that we never bothered to stop and notice because we we're so obsessed with Coca-Cola or whatever it was. And so like now it's like, oh, we're in that action. We're doing the work of reconnecting with each other and relearning who we are in relationship to nature and planting trees that are going to bear fruits 10 years from now, 15 years from now. So really thinking about the future and literally planting seeds of hope. And, and that to me is like, it's just a starting point, really. It's just an invitation in, but it becomes fertile soil for the movement. It becomes a way of regenerating and helping support local leadership and bringing people into relationship with each other that when it's happened and done well has been truly joyful, has been explosively joyful. But of course, humans are complicated. It doesn't always get there. There's conflicts, there's bumps in the road and obstacles. And so part of it is just the commitment to show up day after day and say, we're here and we want to do better than we did the day before, you know, and especially when you're trying to bridge across urban divides of language and culture and class and race, like you're, 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 um, you know, no one's figured out how to do that. <laughs> People have been struggling at it for, for decades. So it's like, if you're going to show up and you do might that well work, try. <laughs> right. It's like, but if you're going to show up and do that work, you better be prepared for it to be hard too. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exhausting, draining. Yeah. Not always. Yeah. There's also these explosive moments of joy where it's like, wow, it really can happen. It's like that's yeah, what we're looking yeah. for, more of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we, we've started to get into um, the Boston Food Forest effort. And um, I'd love to hear about how this transition happened for you. So you used to work on all these big international global issues, and then here you are locally, and, and you started this um, organization from scratch, I understand. What, what was going on for you at the time, and what, what led you in this direction? Yeah, I was actually making a transition from my work with the TELUS Institute to working with Chuck Collins at the Institute for Policy Studies. Um, and Chuck is a well-known um, author on the topic of extreme inequality in the United States and really uh, has been an advocate for progressive taxation and other big liberal ideas that have been um, sidelined, you know, as the country has turned right. So when I first met Chuck, I was still at the TELUS Institute working on the Great Transition Initiative. And we started talking about the frame of what does it, would it take to build a, a new economy rooted in values of sustainability and, and racial justice and you know, taking care of each other? Like what would such an economy look like? And, and um, the Institute for Policy Studies along with several other organizations at that time were talking about the elements of a new economy existing through prior ways of activism. And Chuck himself had been very involved in the community land trust movement, which actually um, Bernie Sanders was fairly involved in over there as mayor of Burlington and um, a whole bunch of other people. And Chuck as a young man had, been, had gotten involved in helping literally implement that model, you know, like build it from scratch with those folks. And, um, you know, his community and land trust- I understand trust community, 
I'm sorry, what is a community land trust? Yeah, a community land trust really is a concept that arose in the struggle for civil rights and helping black farmers have access to land ownership. And then, you know, sort of a classic land trust is a land conservation mechanism. It holds the land in trust of future generations. A community land trust is the concept of you're holding it in trust of the community. And so in an urban context, it's really, I would say 99% of all community land trusts are housing land trusts where they're building permanently affordable housing. Um, and that has a certain economic model because you collect uh, revenue through real estate transactions and rents and lease fees. And so there's a certain way where it self perpetuates and, and self regenerates. Um, and, and it's long-term. And so people really like that as a long-term model of affordable housing. And, and Bernie Sanders really helped pioneer that movement. And Chuck Collins really worked um, bringing those community land trusts to like trailer parks in rural Vermont and New Hampshire and Massachusetts and helping people own the land, right? As a collective, as a community. Um, so, that's been kind of, that was kind of always a progressive idea. You know, other progressive cool ideas within this vein are like worker owned and operated businesses. You know, the notion that like, we live in a democracy, why should the place where we spend 90% of our life, our, our place of business be an autocracy? Like, does it really make sense to have like one person be king, which is basically what private ownership makes. And um, at some level, we're all creating value in the organization, so we should all own a part of the organization. Um, so to the extent that that's true, worker owners have been, and worker own ownership models have been really exciting and have flourished at different moments. Um, you know, and there's other examples of like cooperative banking or credit unions, or just, you know, there's like lots of examples of these pieces that people have innovated and pioneered in the struggle for survival and the struggle for justice often originating in marginalized communities um, who didn't have other options and needed to pool their capital or their resources. And so you get these innovations that happen. So the community land trust really uh, emerges out of this whole new economy thinking at the Institute for Policy Studies, but it has this long, rich history to it. Um, and I think at the time, I was getting really excited about the idea of could you create an integrated system of a community-owned bank, community-owned land, and community-owned housing, and have them be in relationship with each other in a symbiotic, mutually supportive way. So fairly abstract concept. And as I started to think about any piece of that, I got drawn more and more into this idea of a community land trust. And um, I remember I was at a, a community meeting that we were facilitating as part of JPNet, which was a local initiative in the Jamaica Plain neighborhood of Boston to say, what would it take to take the idea of a new economy transition, um, a big abstract idea from the Institute for Policy Study, and make it directly relevant to the lived experience of a diverse urban neighborhood like Jamaica Plain. Um, and we started talking about like all the different pieces of that. And we realized that we were in some ways reinventing the transition town model. So we started to affiliate with the transition town initiative, which started over in um, in England, but we were different than the transition town model, you know, different, but so were all transition towns ultimately, like it was all like aspects of one idea. And then um, we started to form a regional network called the New, Eng New England New Economy Transition 
uh, just really trying to understand like what does it take to build resilience and and regional networks and local economy networks that are resilient as the world gets shaken up. And in those conversations, like local leaders stepped forward with their vision and their ideas, and we created farmers markets and we pioneered a local currency. And we transformed, uh, you know, a dry cleaner into a wet cleaner, removing cancerous chemicals from the neighborhood. And, you know, we did a state of the neighborhood forum, an annual event, bringing together the local city councilors and city uh, nonprofit leadership and, and neighbors into a conversation about what we can do to help our neighborhood adapt in the face of coming challenges. And we did all sorts of projects. Um, and one of them was the food forest. And it was a bunch of neighbors that came together and they were doing different guerrilla gardening projects or they had chickens illegally in their backyard or, you know, there was like a range of different innovations around urban agriculture and they were enthusiastic about food. And it was like, I just remember being at these meetings and like the food table would be mobbed. Like it, the more people would go to that discussion than any of the other discussions happening in the auditorium. And um, there was a food forest in the news at that time because it was being built on over in Seattle on Beacon Hill in Seattle they built a food forest and that was getting national publicity and so folks in Boston were like we got to do one too we got to show up we got to represent and these two vets who had been um one had been in Afghanistan and one was um retired from the Coast Guard they had actually taken the concept around to Boston area nonprofits and got a lot of endorsements and they stood up at a community meeting they said we don't have energy to carry this idea forward but we want to offer it to anyone who's interested. And that's when a whole bunch of neighbors crowded around and wanted to meet again. And my job at the time was to help be the backbone for those meetings and help convene them and find the space and just really follow the leadership where it wanted to go. And so I remember they ultimately settled on the name Boston Food Forest Coalition. Like that was a long conversation. And in, in, in between that, you know, moments of conversation, they were going and they were gleaning apples from legacy apple trees that had long been planted in parks and in yards throughout Boston. And they were learning about the existing fruit orchard that already here is in Boston. And they came up with the vision that a food forest in Boston shouldn't just be in one place. It shouldn't just be like the Beacon Hill food forest in Seattle. It should be all of Boston is the food forest. So what they really wanted was to connect these atomized spaces and neglected and forgotten trees with new intentional permaculture gardening and ecological agriculture and really share and create a community of practice and invite neighbors into that and they just started doing it you know we they started leading workshops they approached the boston nature center mass audubon's urban wildlife sanctuary here in boston and the boston nature center said okay you can use our space for like additional office space and and educational space you don't have to rent the rooms and and here's an acre of land to transform into an educational food forest and you don't have to complete it understand it's a it's a forever work in progress because you're doing and running workshops out of it and so that just launched and then at a certain point um oh we did garden raisings where we would go to people's private yards and in an afternoon pound out a new permaculture garden like an old-fashioned barn raising only it was taking what was like barren lawn and transforming it with native perennials and plants that are good for the pollinators and the birds, but also are food producing like raspberries and blueberries and apple trees and peaches and other things that people want in their yards. And so it was fun and people would learn by doing and they would like learn about all sorts of aspects of that, how to plant a tree, how to prune a tree, you know, what these different 
plants are in their various ecological uses and their various medicinal uses for humans. And it's just, it's just a lot of fun. And it's like a little switch goes off in your head when he's like, oh, let's go do a collective work day in, in so-and-so's backyard. You're like, that doesn't necessarily sound like it'd be as much fun as it really is. It's like some, you have to be there, sweat, and then look back and say, wow, look what we did together. And a pro-social switch that you didn't even know is in your primal brain gets flipped, you know? And it's like you get flooded with endorphins and it's fun because um, we like to work together. It's what our ancestors did. So... So that became what they did. And then the key leaders, one of them had to step back for personal reasons. She was having her first child and she needed to focus on her core business. You know, this wasn't paid work. This was all volunteer work. Um, you know, and other people didn't have the ability to like quit their job and step into the leadership role. And it had grown to a point where it needed to emerge out from under the umbrella of JPNet and IPS. And the need for like land ownership had become apparent as some of these spaces were threatened by development pressure. It's like, if it's going to stay an open community food forest, you know, we have to put it into like a land trust or some way protect it from development. And we did at that time go around and talk to like lots of different existing nonprofits, Boston Natural Areas Network was one, um, you know, trustees of reservations. There's a whole bunch that we spoke to. At Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, which was a land trust or is a land trust in a particular section of Roxbury. Um, you know, just there was nobody who wanted to take on this, these small spaces and, the, and this vision. Everyone was like, we're busy with what we were already doing. You know, that's outside our scope of our mission. Or like Boston Natural Areas Network actually ended up folding and getting absorbed by trustees. So they're going through a massive upheaval, you know. Uh, so we, we decided we needed a, our own nonprofit uh, community land trust. And I left my job at the Institute for Policy Studies and I stepped in as the unpaid executive director to incorporate the organization. And we took the existing steering team that had been leading it as a volunteer group and that became the first board of directors. And we you know, just started meeting more and more neighbors who were doing this work and were happy and grateful that now there was a tool to support it being permanent and that they could interface with the city and we could get access to resources. And so it's been grassroots from the beginning and it's been growing largely through inReach. Like we're not out there proselytizing so much as people are knocking on our door and saying, can you help us out? Like we're talking to neighbors right now in Lower Roxbury um, about a parkland that they created a long time ago and already has fruit trees in it. And it's, um, you know, that's why we're here. So we're, we're, we're in conversations to see if that's a good fit. You know, it's just like, that's how we've been expanding and growing. And I think the, the most encouraging part of that in an in a interesting way is like, as the crisis of earth deepens, as we feel the climate emergency increasingly in our neighborhoods, and we have like the hottest, wettest season on record here in Boston and the most vulnerable, the elderly especially suffered. And you have, um, that reality people want to get involved they want to do something and here we are already doing something and 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 there's just an increase of interest in what we're doing and more and more volunteers knocking on our doors and what we need to do is find the resources to hire enough staff that we can basically harness that energy and really be effective um in absorbing that volunteer energy because we're teeny tiny right now and we're all working you know more than one person's job and we're not being paid very well. So it's like the whole thing is like, it's a brilliant um, effort that has grown, you know, with from no budget 
to a much more substantial budget and largely with support from the city of Boston. So it's a moment of like grassroots initiative meeting top-down funding from the city. And that handshake has been pretty firm. Like the city loves what we're doing and wants to support it, gives us the land for a nominal fee, um, is bringing even more resources to this as COVID crisis has deepened. So it's been interesting how, how that's happened. Um, it just, so anyway, so that's, I mean, that's sort of like the moment we're in. Like, I, like we're literally at this cusp of like where we could be very successful and move forward um, and build a land trust that's here in perpetuity and really is a gift to future generations, you know, for all of Boston, Boston and even greater Boston. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing sounds amazing. I mean, what I'm thinking about at the moment is just that in cities, especially in some struggling neighborhoods, properties will go abandoned or dormant and just look shitty for years. Like, why not make it vibrant and full of plants and feed people? You know, it's like, it, it kind of mystifies me sometimes in city environments how properties will just get ignored for years. Like, oh, totally. who wants that, you know? Well, so. some of it does happen. I mean, that's what I've been I mean, inspired by is the fact that, like, a lot of these spaces long predate the Boston Food Forest Coalition. Like, these neighbors have been coming together since the 70s and 80s and 90s in Boston. And they have been beautifying and like the Leland Cooperative Garden up the street from where I'm living now um, was created, I think, in the 80s and 90s. And it was like a trash strewn, vacant, neglected city lot with hypodermic needles and, you know, tires and TVs. And the neighbors came together to clean it up and they started planting trees and they started putting in grow beds. And then they got a little bit of funding here and a little bit of funding there. And they were moving plants from their own yards over there and they were learning as they went about gardening and teaching each other and then having potlucks in the winter and uh, you know, brunches on Sundays and reading books together. Like it became a whole, and, and they still are here. And they, here they are decades later. And they had like during COVID a lot of cultural events. So people could be you know, socially distanced, but not isolated and come out and sit in, in the outdoors, which is apparently relatively safe and um, listen to music. Or uh, they just did a timber framing workshop and, and the Leland Cooperative Garden, you know, approached us and said, we heard about the Boston Food Forest Coalition. We feel like finally there's a place for us. Like you guys embody who we, we've always felt we were. And as I've been, you know, doing this work, more and more neighbors like that of a prior generation of activists have shown up and they have stories, some of which are battle scars and, and wounds, which have left a lot of cynicism and pain and some of which are victories. And, and, um, and it's useful to remember that, like that's, been part of the intention, like I just was talking to a group called Dorchester Gardenlands Preserves, which got five different plots and transformed them into community gardens back in the 70s and 80s. And they, don't, they haven't been that active really since then, but they still exist. So I didn't even know they were like still in existence. Um, you know, there's just a large range of different groups, uh, like these folks in Lower Roxbury who are talking about the Frederick Douglass Peace Garden that they built together, you know, through community initiative. So part of it is like, wow, like this is a service that's been needed and continues, to, as I say, to intensify, like more and more people are interested in gardening, more and more people are interested in native plants and understanding the threat that invasives are to the wildlife and the, the birds and the bees that we love so much. And so like, it's an increasing desire and growing food locally. Like it's like, it's not, more and more people are saying it's not about calories. 
It's about healthy food and healthy food choices and accessible healthy food, you know, that's not overly priced. Well, what better way to get a pint of raspberries than to pick it in the food forest growing next door to your house? You know, that's that's sort of the gift of these spaces. Um, and so it's, I think that's uh, like, like it's, and then it's like, and then you layer into that just rainwater capture, right? So like, you know, the rainwater runoff is a big problem in most cities. Here we're capturing it on site, it infiltrates into the soil carbon sequestration, and even like the intangibles, like we don't know 100% why flowers and trees prevent violence in city neighborhoods, but we absolutely understand that that's a true thing. Like urban planning schools, you know, you study that correlation and the causation is, is a bit mysterious, except that there's also all these psychological studies saying that even just an image of a tree reduces stress and cortisone levels in the human body. So it's like, it's primal. Like we like having trees and flowers around and, and it helps us be more peaceful and kind to each other. And kids who grow up with regular and consistent access to green space, you know, it mitigates long-term adverse mental health outcomes, which is a big issue in urban youth. So, and they've shown that urban youth who have access to, to safe green spaces do better in the long-term. Like mm -hmm. It's a very yeah. peaceful intervention that has potentially long-term impacts. Yeah. Well, and part of what excites me about your work is that it's helping people in cities be connected to nature. And, and one of the things I've been concerned about is that um, humanity around the world is becoming more urbanized. That's just the trend. More people live in cities than ever. But sometimes cities have been devoid of nature. And here we are now where across the world, nature is being destroyed left and right, and people are not standing up for it. There's not adequate public policies to protect it. People are not enough, enough people clamoring to save nature. And I think it's part of this urbanization where people just feel disconnected from the living world. And so with efforts like what you're describing, when you can get people actually with plants and with animals and touching things and being with nature, they're probably more willing to stand up for it and, and be a citizen around that and push for good policies and, and all the stuff we need to everybody save nature. Yeah, I think that's been shown. I think it does, um, you know, there have been some studies that have like show that students with more access to nature, there's less bullying. You know, there's a certain way where like um, remembering our connection to creation, if you can put it that way, is important. It's, it's like core to, again, it's like that animal, like we're not, you know, it's not to say that what humans do is unnatural because just in the same way a termite builds a giant termite mound, right? And, the, and it's like this huge structure, like humans, we build cathedrals, you know, like we do these things because it's part of our, our animal instinct and our nature as well. Like we are natural beings, but we can do it in a way that respects ourselves as part of that web of life. And we can do it in a way that's regenerative and feeds the regenerative web of life. And right now we have a life destroying civilization. We're literally killing ourselves and destroying the web of life and eliminating species forever from earth um, and making it uninhabitable for our children. Like it's literally a life destroying civilization. And um, it doesn't have to be, it could be a life sustaining civilization. It could be a regenerative, like imagine if everybody's job when you woke up in the morning and you went to work every day, wasn't like to destroy and extract more, but was to help regenerate. 
And why not? Why couldn't we structure such an economy where people really do get a chance to do what feels joyful and meaningful and helpful? I mean, isn't that what the economy should be for? Instead of building weapons and and you know repairing the 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 damage of floods that could have been prevented, we should. I mean, it just feels like there's some perversity in the fact that so many people hate their work and their and and their work is so destructive and soul sucking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, I know. I know. It doesn't have to be that. Yeah. Way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, taking that concept maybe a step further is I've had this vision of our cities, even our dense downtown areas where you've got the big concrete skyscrapers and office buildings or whatever. Why can't we cover them in plants? I mean, like creeping ivy on all buildings or, you know, every apartment building has, you know, a garden box on the balcony or even office buildings. You can open the window and there's plants right there. You know, you could really you could put plants everywhere if you were intentional about it. And we could make even around. Yeah, malls. I think that's I mean, absolutely true. There's so many like more concrete than we, chit show. Than we yeah, I mean, I mean I'd, I'd love to see more. Another thing we could do is uh, in Boston, we've um, the Army Corps of Engineers put a lot of the streams under the ground um, into culverts and tunnels. And so we don't even know we're driving over these streams. And yet the foundations of like buildings built near these spaces, you know, they just go through chronic disrepair because they're harder to maintain because it's not real. The ground is actually mm -hmm. over So it's like, why not just let those buildings collapse where they don't want to be? build higher density in other parts of the city and resurface those streams and bring that riparian nature back to life and plant around the borders to prevent flooding and make those borders beautiful parks and food forests that permeate mm -hmm. through our city. I mean, we can mm -hmm. imagine it and it's definitely technically feasible and prior generations built all types of infrastructure, not necessarily always the best choices, you know, with modernism and their assumptions about life, but like, now we know better. Let's make better choices and take the same resources and before it's too late and start and start. And I, as you're pointing out, like more and more humans are going to live in cities. So let's make cities really livable. Let's mm -hmm. recognize that quality of life. It's not just affordable housing. You know, it's the same thing for the businesses. The businesses get gentrified. The local businesses get moved out. Like it's these businesses are, are the hotbed of community. People know each other through these interactions at these businesses. It's not just like place to make money it's like this is like where community comes alive so if we want we, we need the affordable housing we need the affordable local businesses and we need the open space and the access to nature that's primal to to our human beingness and i think looking at like how old villages are structured and like for architectural inspiration like there's movements around that um richard register is an architect at the university of berkeley i believe um who wrote a lot about eco-cities and eco adaptation of cities to be more ecological. You know, and some of his stuff is cute, um, you know, bicycle bridges between buildings. And, but, but a lot of it's very innovative and very policy and analytical and still applicable. Um, mm -hmm. Like he talks about transferable development rights. So where the new developments are constantly looking for zoning variances in order to make somebody a lot of money link those zoning variances to helping build and, and resurface some of these streams and do some of this work that's necessary and then slowly over time developers will help pay for the transformation of cities and you'll get your tall skyscrapers in certain areas and your more riparian permeated neighborhoods in other areas and i think one of the challenges is is actually if you go 
and you have a big community meeting and you say, what do you all want to see happen in this neighborhood? Everyone thinks in terms of the existing world and they're like, we need more parking. It's literally what everyone yeah. always says. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> more concrete, please. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. But even then, you can make one parking garage for the neighborhood and let the rest of the rest of the land be free. I mean, there's ways to do that, too, and, yeah. and still have nature. So, I mean, we have no shortage of technology. I mean, we've created an Internet. You can buy anything on Amazon from around the world. We are trying to send people to Mars. I mean, there's no shortage of technological ability. We could apply it right here to allowing life to emerge in our cities. Why not? So, Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. It's like, especially when our backs are against the wall, we're incredibly innovative. Um, so let's heave ho and get to it. I mean, like, if, I think part of the challenge is like, you have to sort of like, people go from complete denial and then they flip the, the needle all the way over to utter despair. And it's like in between is where we have to stay. We have to be fluctuating around it in that liminal space of being alive, right? And um, feeling things and open ourselves to all the feelings. It's like, if we can do that, then maybe we can navigate an innovative solution, but we have to let ourselves feel. If we're just in denial, then we don't change anything about the world. And we don't acknowledge that, you know, we have an obligation to our children to change things and start fixing things now. And I think that's like, for me, I have really young kids. I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. And my feeling is like, okay, here's the world in crisis. You know, this is what I'm giving you as your inheritance. But I also want to gift them at the same time. And here's my best efforts at solutions. And here's all my friends and family involved in that. And here's a way for you to sort of like take what we're giving you and make it better because it's your world, ultimately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with these efforts you're doing, and let's just assume that they get ramped up and you get all the funding and staff you deserve to do the great work, and there's, you know, the movement in general grows, I'm thinking about how much food we might be able to produce locally for people to eat as sort of even a national security issue, really, because we may have really difficult times ahead. And I think our current farm system has given us plenty of food over the years, but should not be taken for granted with climate change and pandemics and whatever else. I mean, I got thinking about food security so much during COVID-19 with all the lockdowns when I went to grocery stores and half the shelves were empty. I'm like, oh shit, this food um, accessibility I've taken for granted my whole life really should not be taken for granted. You know, so what you're doing is really adding a layer of security where if the current systems struggle, you can go out back and pick some apples or some berries or grow something in your yard or, you know, have access to more food locally. Yeah, I think that's a hundred percent right. Um, there's there's a truth that we've all been experiencing, right? Which is we have this really efficient, globally integrated economy, including the food systems, and it's incredibly brittle. It's incredibly, it's very efficient. You know, it's good for on-demand restaurants where we sit down and we want to be able to eat exactly what's on the menu whenever we order it. And so we have a system that really does provide that and provides it relatively cheaply. So that's efficiency. 
but boy, is it brittle. <laughs> you know, it's like a little bit of a, a hiccup and all of a sudden there's shortages and, and delays and things. I mean, it's like, and that we're just at the beginning of the perturbances we're gonna be experiencing with increasing deepening climate change and what what is definitely gonna feel like a period of increasing global chaos. So it's scary because we're, we're, we're all of a sudden aware that, oh, I'm plugged into this system. And if the system stops working, I don't really have another alternative. <laughs> like, where do I get my food? Or, you know, like, and absolutely, like, back in the day, even back in the 50s, it was a much more regional food economy. And you had different regions of the country specializing. But now so much comes from just these, like a few counties in California, you know, and it gets trucked all over and refrigerated carts. So, yeah, we got to rebalance. And those California places are running out of water, too. Like, exactly. That California exactly. food may not continue. So, sorry yeah. to interrupt, but. No, but, but that's exactly right. I mean, you just, it, so we have to rebalance. I mean, it's like whether we choose to do it consciously and rapidly now or whether we're like forced to do it out of necessity in, and panic later, like it has to happen. So, people are aware of that. There are these conversations happening across New England, for example. There's an organization called Food Solutions New England, which has brought together the departments of agriculture from all the different states of New England, and not just the, the policymakers, but also everyone in the food system, from the producers and growers, to so the farm system workers and food service workers, to the investors, uh, to the restaurant owners, like the whole farm to table spectrum has been consulted and it's an ongoing process. And they created a New England food vision and uh, they asked the question, like, what would it take to produce 50% of our calories locally in New England by 2060? You know, like, if that was the direction we wanted to achieve by 2060, what magnitude of change are we talking about? Um, and, and, they did, and they crunched the numbers, and they looked at the arable land in New England, and they looked at the rates of urban sprawl, and they looked at how much wildlands and woodlands you'd want to keep alive for other forms of nature and not just cut it all down and go back to the clear cut New England of yesteryear, which was its own type of ecological catastrophe. So they looked at all that stuff and they ran the scenarios and they said, what assumptions can we make about how we might be willing to change our diets? And so they had multiple different um, dietary assumptions and that created different scenarios. And they, they talked about their population growth assumptions. I mean, they went through it like any rigorous scenario building process can do it. And they determined it's technically achievable, but we would have to uh, definitely repurpose some suburban and urban land. It's, it would be a sliver of the overall pie. So urban agriculture absolutely matters for this vision. We will have to train more people to become farmers and recruit more people to be farmers, which is a hard sell because it's a very hard road to hoe, so to speak. It's a lot of work, not a lot of remuneration, and not a lot of time off. So, who wants yeah, the job? And risky too. <laughs> and a lot of farmers in New England are like, I think the average age of a new farmer is like sixty, something crazy like that. It's like people enter farming later in life because it's so expensive. How do you get access to the land? You know, like you, you leverage and go into debt just to get ownership of your farm in the first place. So like the whole thing needs a lot of subsidies, needs a lot of like living wage is a big part of the vision. If you really think it through logically, it's like it starts to connect to so many other changes that are needed. But it's just it's you know, it's the point is that people are talking about it. It's on the agenda. It's it's in the imagination. It's being 
you know, it's it's definitely not it's not a mainstream conversation. It's definitely more of a policy conversation with various stakeholder groups, but it's it's out there. It's happening. Yeah, I don't know if it's within your realm, but it, is there work being done to grow food indoors in you know old warehouses or mills or factories that are abandoned using grow lights and such? Is that a, a viable option? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think especially when you think about urban agriculture, that's a very viable option. Um, especially if you can link those grow lights to solar panels and, and regenerative exactly. energy. Um, yeah, you, I think you can get a lot that way. There's a whole debate between those people who believe in restoring the soil and and natural systems and those people who are like super high tech and into hydroponics and chemical solution. Um, it looks like the food grown hydroponically is probably fine and adequate and tasty and safe and you know it's not organic but it's probably not bad for the world if it's done with renewable energy so it's not a bad option for part of the puzzle i don't think um rooftop gardens people are also exploring that and doing rooftop farming that has a lot of obstacles um you know just technical things about load weights that you know you when you put soil on top of a roof that's already um engineered so you're sort of retrofitting it for the some are more easy to retrofit than others. And then you have, um, you know, all the challenges of farming. <laughs> it's just like, there's a lot of labor involved. And I think, um, but one of the things that roofs offer is large flat areas when you can find it. Um, I think that's one of the challenges of traditional farming in a city is large flat areas and contiguous plots of land. So you're not like driving from plot to plot to plot and in spending all your time in traffic as you're trying to bring your goods to market. So, I think that's another thing that food forests offer uh, as a solution, which is to say, you know, not every er aspect of urban agriculture needs to be a farm. You know, there's other ways to do urban agriculture. Community gardens are another good example of urban agriculture, but people are growing, it's more like victory gardens. They're growing for their own families. Um, and again, that also tends to be flat. And what food forests are more about is like, well, yeah, sure, have some of those raised beds and those boxed garden beds but then put some fruit trees in there and have like a fruit vine going up it and like put in some understory shrubbery and, and think about like the three dimensions of the space and some things grow well in the shade. So not everything has to have direct sunlight. And that's important because in the city, there's lots of buildings and other things that cast shade onto these lots. And so you can do more with good design on irregular city lots when you think like that. And it's not necessarily, commercial growing, but it's still growing food and it's still feeding people. And it's also teaching people about their diets and food preservation and food harvesting and all that. Yeah. How much food output are you guys able to pull off with these plots? And, and how do you determine who gets what? You'll have a bunch of neighbors sharing a project together. How much do you just split it equally between everybody who worked on it or are there how much yeah, do you get and how do you figure out? So the land trust doesn't have a set policy. The land trust really, it, it, just as it should be, it's like we're holding the land in trust and the beneficiaries, the exclusive rights and users of this land is the community. And that community is represented through these volunteer stewardship teams that do all the work. So they do the snow shoveling, the trash removal, the weeding, the pruning, the harvesting, they do it all. And it's all volunteer. So those volunteers get to decide where the fruits of their harvest go. And sometimes they take uh, their share, 
their, of apples or things that they love. Sometimes they have put it in brown bags and gone door to door to neighbors they know are needy and offer them food. Sometimes they've put it out on tables and with a sign that says, please take some and let other people just sort of bag their groceries like a CSA might. Um, others have literally formed relationships with like Women's Lunch Place, which is a homeless shelter that feeds folks in downtown Boston. And so all the food grown at the Old West Church food forest goes to feed folks at Women's Lunch Place. Um, Others have made partnerships with like elder service uh, nonprofits like Rounding the Bases, which does cooking classes with the elderly. And so the food has gone there. Others have brought it to their churches and distributed it that way. So it's really, um, it really varies and it can change as relationships change. Um, and one, another thing that a lot of these sites do is they have an annual harvest festival. So before COVID, this was a more active part of what we did was a lot of community gatherings. These are not just farms, these are public parks. There's outdoor movie nights, there's open mic nights, there's Easter egg hunts and birthday parties, there's wake up the earth barbecues, there's you know harvest festivals where we make apple cider at the end of the summer. I mean, there's face painting and I mean, it just goes on and on like what people have imaginatively made the, come alive in these spaces. Um, and so that's a big part of it too, it's the culture, it's the connectivity. And then the food gets shared that way. And the food also gets shared with all visitors and that includes non-human visitors. So animals get some of it, unless you put netting on some of the, your cherry trees and stuff, the animals get most of it. So it's like, you got to decide. And that's, again, it's up to the volunteers. You know, this is their space. Um, you know, the land trust supports them, basically. We, we provide technical assistance. We do training and fruit tree and fruit care maintenance. And we do, um, training and group dynamics if they need it or leadership or community outreach or whatever they sort of need to sort of keep themselves going. We've helped them with grant writing. Um, we do a lot of the design work early on. If there's like a technical expert that's needed because your peach tree has peach bore and you don't know what to do about it, like we find those technical experts and we find the ones that are oriented towards permaculture and ecological principles and not towards chemical, you know, sort of like pest control necessarily. You know, but sometimes it's like a choice. It's like if you want your winter moths to be addressed, you, you can either wait for nature to deal with it or you can spray. And there's a trade-off both directions. So we, we're honest about that. We, but we ultimately let the stewards decide. It's their space. Yeah, yeah. Are, are there efforts like this happening in a lot of places? Is there a whole network of these around the country or in other countries? There are definitely food forests and community farms and all sorts of like urban orchards all over the country popping up. And the models really vary and are different. They're not all following our model of being part of a community land trust. Some are city owned, some are owned by nonprofits. Some are like what I said with Beacon Hill food forests in Seattle. It's like it's one project in one location. Some are, you know, multiple projects. Some are happening in schoolyards and churchyards. I would say the food movement in the United States is alive and well. You know, like when Michelle Obama tore part of the White House lawn to plant a garden, like it signaled at some level that there's a movement afoot. Um, and I think it's still afoot and still growing. Um, mm -hmm. What we're doing is innovative in certain ways, like the, the combination of community ownership through the land trust, the combination of community stewardship through these volunteer teams, um, linking that with the relationships that we've been able to build with the city of Boston is fairly unique, I would say. Um, but a lot of the the story can be useful for other sister initiatives and we're building out tools like everything from how do you know you have a healthy food forest and a dashboard to help the volunteers manage that to like 
online resources you can find on our resource library at bostonfoodforest.org about how do you know what's a weed and what's a, a valuable perennial like you, there's a little video there you can watch to sort of so we're, we're just building out our tool library and we're happy to begin you know if we're successful in our fundraising and we get our full staff component we'll be even more active in sharing that outwards and making connections on beyond boston yeah yeah for this whole um movement to grow of creating local food opportunities what's needed to grow the movement i mean do we need public policy do we need money do we need expertise do we need, like what do we need to make more of this in the world yeah i think we need that all that um you know definitely public policy matters you know there's a time in the 40s, I think, where we really figured out a whole bunch of public supports for local family-owned farming. And then we dismantled those uh, to centralize farming in the hands of large agribusiness. I mean, that was a public policy decision. And both, both systems depend on a lot of public subsidies. So it's just a matter of how we want to direct that subsidy. It's not like, do we need subsidy? I mean, we have it. We've always had it. Farming's always had it. So it's more like, who do we prioritize, the local family farmers or the, the large agribusiness? Again, the large agribusiness is great at the monocropping and the efficient system that we have that produces a lot of meat and a lot of other things that we really like. So it's not a simple transition, but it's also totally an unsustainable system. <laughs> you know, it's destroying the top. So, I mean, we could go on and on. It's impoverishing people. It's even as it's creating so many calories, we still have underfed, malnourished uh, folks in our world. So it's like it's not even succeeding at its minimal job. So we need to change that industrial food system. Um, and that is definitely going to be like the USDA farm bill. You know, we have to change that. I mean, there's so public policy is huge in this. Um, but I think also we just need to know, like we need education. We need people to be engaged with their food. To, you know, it's surprising how many kids walk into a food forest and they say, I didn't know strawberries only grow this time of year. Or I didn't know that's how grapevines look and that's where grapes grow. I mean, it's like, yeah, we got to know this stuff. Like you were saying earlier, like you got to be able to touch nature in order to be an advocate for nature. Um, and so similarly, like if we're going to advocate for ecological agricultural principles to be carried out on a policy level, we sort of have to experience it in our lives at some level. And so having it um, locally is very important. And then definitely rebalancing towards local food production is crucial. And I think one of the interesting parts about that is if we have a sense of solidarity towards people in, in the world who are struggling with chronic water shortages, and we live in a really wet, moldy part of the world, how do we share our water with them? Well, it's through the food we grow. That's the best, most efficient way to share our water with them. Um, so if we wanted to really orient ourselves towards that and be a, a space of regional abundance, we could be a beacon onto the world. We could be a source of inspiration and others could uh, you know, benefit from that and be inspired and learn from our example. And I think there's a lot to be said for that right now because I think hopelessness is the enemy of justice as Brian Stevenson said, you know, it's like hopelessness is gonna, is like the whole zombie fascination in our culture. Like there's a sort of zombification of our sense of the future. It's like, oh, it's only doom and gloom. Well, if that's really our image, you know, we're calling it into existence because the future is, again, not someplace we're going. It's something we get to create. Yeah. You know, that idea about um, New England being so rich in water, I've thought about before and felt grateful for it. You know, I live in Massachusetts, but I never really thought until now about how 
This area should be a food exporter to the world. It should not well, be California very, in the middle of a desert, you know. I mean, I think that's a good question, actually. It's not, I wouldn't say that's a conclusion. The Food Solutions New England, they looked at, like, we have rocky, acidic soil. We'll never produce enough grain to feed ourselves. We'll always need to, like, import grain. Um, you know, clearly we can't grow bananas and are unlikely to ever be able to grow bananas or coffee beans well here. So there's things that we're going to want. Um, on the other hand, we're really well suited for dairy production and meat production. I mean, there's a reason why Vermont has specialized in dairy and our rocky terrains and pasture fed meat and grass fed meat could really be produced well here. Um, and there's other things that, that do well in New England. So if we specialize in what we do well and we diversify like the garden vegetables, because you know, a lot of the sort of like nutrient rich foods that we like in our salad, we could all grow nearby and close mm -hmm. by you know so yeah this whole conversation has been fascinating and i've just been learning so much and i'm so excited about it i mean because you're solving so many things at the same time um and i just appreciate your enthusiasm for it i mean i can tell you're just jazzed up and you're into it which is really it's awesome i mean i love yeah. that um i mean we've spanned a whole bunch of different issues in this talk is, is there anything we missed or any sort of well, I'm sure there's, lingering there's stuff in your mind just, yeah i mean well one thing that we, we we maybe mentioned briefly was like racial justice and i would say that that's a huge component of all of this um, and I have, and it's a long conversation, but I think there's a lot to be said for when I was a young man, I was involved um, very briefly for, for as a three month intern in South Africa, when the African National Congress had taken control of parliament in South Africa and was rewriting the constitution. And I got to be an intern to Willie Hoffmeyer, who was a member of the ANC. Um, he was an activist who had been in jail during the anti-apartheid struggle. He'd never expected to find himself in parliament. He was trying to run his little member of parliament office. And I showed up as like a very young man and I helped him organize his files. And he sent me off to meetings to take notes on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was getting formed and keeping him involved in that process and updating him and writing memos. And it was fun. It was a great summer for me. And it was very eye-opening um, about what, reconciliation means with history and how might we really engage in that process. So I think that's a big part of what needs to happen in the United States and also just between the global North and the global South. Like, I don't think we're going to get from here to there by sweeping it all under the rug. I mean, and I don't think the current climate and the current conversation is that productive. So there's a lot to figure out around real reconciliation with history and, and what that means for repairing the harm done. And, and restoring uh, rights uh, to people whose rights still to this day are under assault. And what does it mean to, to think about that as all process and part of this regeneration that we've been talking about? So as we regenerate the web of life, I think there's a whole racial justice component, um, climate justice component that um, needs to be explicit in the conversation. And there's just so much to talk about. So I'm sure that's just one of several things, I, I mean, there's other, elements that we probably haven't touched on as well but we could talk forever as you can tell i'm excited about it <laughs> yeah we, we probably could you know but i mean the the racial thing you bring up is critically important and i think it's again one of those issues where we've fought about it forever as a moral issue but now it may be existential i mean 
you know, the, the global north versus global south. I mean, if we're going to let whole parts of the world remain poorer and struggling and they just happen to be brown and black people, you know, maybe our racism is getting in the way of saving ourselves from these enormous global issues like climate and pandemics and loss of nature and, and whatever else. Um, and it happens locally, too. I mean, as you guys work in... Um, neighborhoods where brown and black people live um, have historically been poorer than the rest of the population economically. You know, rebalancing that with nature and climate solutions and food and um, it's all in a well, also for ownership sure. of land. I mean, I think these are neighborhoods yeah. where people just within recent memory, there's there's elders, elder activists who've been alive and have tried again and again to get the city to respond to their needs in the neighborhood or to own a park on behalf of the community only to watch some nonprofit take it away from them you know and so there's battle scars and wounds that are real in a city like boston that need to be addressed and and people need to have i mean community building happens at the speed of trust building and that's slow and then people retire people die people move away but the speed of capital and the speed of real estate development is much faster. Well, I could talk with you for many more hours, I'm sure. And hopefully I will at some point. Um, but this has just been really fabulous. And I'm just so grateful to you for coming to share all of what you've been doing. Um, so thank you for all this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's um, really been fun. It's, it's, I'm grateful yeah. to be part of this conversation with you. Appreciate the invitation to reflect on my global local story because i feel like you're right it's like when one person i'm torn and it's it's great to try to weave these threads together it's meaningful yeah and it is so obviously interconnected i mean i didn't quite realize until we had this conversation but they really do fit together in interesting ways they're they're not different I mean, all these big international solutions we talk about, it's actually getting implemented on the ground in communities by real people. So it, it all fits. Yeah, in permaculture, so. we often talk about how the soil is foundational, right? Like you have to start any project with understanding your soil and regenerate. There's more species of life alive below the soil than above the soil. And so you have to get that going again. And like the dead compacted polluted soils of urban context like it needs a lot of work to jumpstart it but once it gets going nature regenerates and then that becomes the foundation for all the beautiful stuff you want to grow in your garden hey man brother keep it up <laughs> it's fabulous work i hope you i just wish you all the best in all this thank you um, shelby yeah. yeah. And listeners, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm glad that you've been with us for this conversation. And I just want to let you know that in the show notes for this, um, I'm going to link you to all of what we've talked about. Uh, links to the Boston Food Forest Coalition, to the TELUS Initiative, and maybe some other things along the way I might link you to. So thank you, and uh, we'll see you next time. And until then, let's try to be the best people we can be. Take care. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. 
Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.